0: Well, hey, again, good morning. We are so, so glad that all of you decided to show up here today. Uh, we really, really do mean that. We, we don't just say that. We don't take that for granted, especially if this is your first time with us. Every week, we have people that walk through our doors for the first time, and, and again, we don't take that for granted. Um, but again, we're, we're so glad you kind of overcame those fears. You took that risk. You showed up here today. I also challenge you, if it is your first time with us here today, uh, don't let this be a one-time experience. And the reason that I say that is because it's really, really difficult to get an accurate understanding of basically anything, not just church, but anything in our lives based on a single experience. And so our hope and our prayer is that you'll come back at least three or four times, and maybe this will be a place that you make a part of your weekly rhythm. Now, admittedly, I get pretty excited anytime time we start a new series around here. But I have to tell you, I am like particularly jacked up for the series that we are starting today called Who's Your One? This is a series actually uh, that's been on the calendar now for for well over a year. It's kind of been this nagging, uh, persistent conviction that just will not go away. It's like God put this pressure on. It's just like, man, he hasn't let it up. In fact, it's only gotten heavier and heavier and heavier. Uh, This is also a series, the content that we're gonna be discussing here over these next three weeks uh, that isn't going anywhere. And here's what I mean by that. For, for as long as we exist as a church, this, this who's your one language, this who's your one strategy, if you want to call it that, uh, we anticipate will forever be a part of our DNA. That This is basically the first chapter in what we hope to be a very, very long book. Uh, we, we talk about this all the time, and I don't just say this because it sounds nice or because it perhaps sounds inspirational, but uh, we're confident that God is just getting started here with this church. God's done some pretty incredible things over the first year and nine months of our existence, but we truly believe that, that God's just started scratching the surface with how he is going to use Grumlaw Church, and, and I really, really believe that interweaving Who's Your 1 into literally every fiber of this church will result. And Grumla having the greatest possible impact for Christ in this community. I, I'm believing that it'll result in, in coworkers, in neighbors, in family members, in friends, lives changed. And in turn, eternity's forever impact. So you can understand if if all that holds true, why that would get me in particular as a pastor really, really excited. Some of you, in fact, probably most of you are wondering what in the heck I'm actually alluding to. Uh, And I promise that we'll have some more clarity surrounding that here by the end of this message. But before we go any farther this morning, I would love to pray for all of you, pray for myself, so allow me to do that now. God, we're really, really grateful that you decided um, to, to bring all these people here today. Uh, again, it just kind of blows my mind to stand up here every Sunday. and I'm like, okay, people showed up again. And I just ask God uh, that no matter why we're here, whether we wanted to be here, whether we were talked into it, whether we were basically bribed, forced, whatever that is. I mean, we're sitting in these seats now. I just ask that we would be open to whatever it is that you do want to say to us this morning. Because I'm confident if, uh, if we're willing to listen, uh, you definitely have something to say to us today. Uh, You're such a good, good father, and in your name we pray, amen. Now, as we jump into this here today, uh, I have a question for all of you, and every single one of you are invited to participate and and answer this question, uh, whether you've been coming to church your entire life or whether this is basically your first time stepping through the doors of a church. The the question is this, what comes to your mind when you hear the word Christian? You you don't have to answer that out loud necessarily, but, but what sort of imagery jumps to mind? What type of a person comes to mind when you hear the word, when you hear the term Christian? So, so allow me maybe this morning to get your, your wheels turned a little bit. Let's prime the pump here a little bit and don't answer these out loud. But, but what comes to your mind when you hear Hillary supporter? It's like, ooh, wow, you're just driving an ax right in the room, just like that. How about Trump supporter? Michigan fan? Michigan State fan? Okay, let's, let's get all in common ground. I'm confident that we'll all agree on this one. What comes to your mind when you hear Ohio State fan? Probably this, right? I would assume so. That's not you. Okay. Uh, crossfitter? How about, how about a gamer? How about a teacher? Okay, so hopefully your, your brains now are actively engaged. So back to this question, what comes to your mind when you hear the word Christian? Now, now chances are, if you ask 10 different people, that that question, you would probably get back 10 different answers. In fact, even if you started to stop random people that you came across on any given day and you started asking the question, are you a Christian, you you would get back so many different answers. Some people would say, well, well, I guess so. Others would say, well, what do you mean? Some would say, yes, but... Others would say, no, but. Some would say, yeah, but I'm not like fill in the blank. And some of you, and this would describe you if you're maybe perhaps sitting here today. uh, And by the way, we're really, really glad that you're here. Some of you would say, absolutely not, that there's not a chance that I am a Christian. Some of you, when you hear the term Christian, you think almost exclusively positive thoughts. You, you think about a person in your life that, that has just shown you the love of Jesus so well, and they've had such a dramatic and a positive impact on your life. And others of you, you hear the term Christian, and you think of judgmental, homophobic moralists who think that they're the only ones going to heaven and secretly relish the fact that everybody else is going to hell. Now, now here's what's, what's kind of strange and I found to be really, really interesting. The first Jesus followers did not call themselves Christians. Christian was actually a derogatory term used by people outside of the Jewish community. It was this belittling, it was this sarcastic term that implied this, you know, that's just really, really cute. You all are trying to be like a bunch of little Jesuses. It would be like telling a five-year-old and try to treat it as a compliment that they are a baby. You ever called a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old a baby? That there is no circumstance under the sun that they will take that as a compliment, And so what did the early Christians call themselves? As it turns out, uh, you don't actually have to dig very hard to figure this out, that they called themselves disciples. In this entire book, this is interesting, that we call the Bible, um, the term Christian is used, you ready for this, three times, as in one, two, three. Whereas the word disciple is used 281 times. Now, I know some of you are thinking, nice research, Bible boy, why in the heck does that matter to me? And I'd like to tell you why I think this matters. Andy Stanley, uh, who's a pastor of a church down in Atlanta, Georgia, he puts it this way, and I couldn't agree more. He says, I want to suggest to you that in changing the primary word that we use to describe ourselves, we lost the clarity. That the word disciple conveyed about what a follower of Jesus actually is. My, my, my point is that I want to show you that our use of the term Christian obscures the fact that a lot of people who call themselves Christians are not actually disciples. See, see it's really, really, really easy to hide behind the term Christian. Because as we have all experienced, Christian can be incredibly vague. It's why if you ask 10 different people what a Christian is, you will get back 10 different answers. But it's not the case with the word disciple. Disciple is far more narrow. Disciple is far more focused. It's far more difficult to dress up. It's a lot more difficult to hide behind. It's far more difficult to disguise. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to go back to our roots in following Jesus and gain a better understanding of what a disciple actually is and how these early Jesus followers truly saw themselves. To do this, we're gonna jump into Matthew chapter four. Uh, For those of you that that don't know, Matthew is the, the first book of kind of what we call the second half of the Bible, the New Testament. Matthew, along with Mark, Luke, and John, those four books, they tell the story of Jesus from four different people's perspectives. If you've never picked up and read a Bible for yourself, uh, the book of Matthew would be a really, really great place for you to start. Just begin to read about the life of Jesus. You might be shocked at what you find in there. But in Matthew chapter four, it says this. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus took strolls on the beach, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter and Andrew. And they were throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. Now, those of you that grew up going to the church, pause real quick here. Uh, We read that statement we go, yeah, that's that's great. What the crap is that supposed to mean? I'm gonna show you how to fish for people? Shockingly, it goes well. They left their nets at once and they decided to follow him. Now, I would like to be a little bit transparent with all of you this morning. I grew up going to church. Church has always been a part of my life. I have heard this story so many times. And I got to tell you, for most of my life, it made zero sense. And I got to think that if you're sitting here today and you're new to this whole Christianity thing, you haven't heard this story very many times, if you're actually paying attention, you're reading this along here with me, it probably doesn't make much sense to you either. Now, now maybe because of like the B-rate Christian movies that I grew up, you know, watching and, you know, these Christian storybooks. But I I picture Jesus rolling along the beach in his standard white bathrobe. He's like the blue Miss America sash thrown across his chest, the Ric Flair hair flowing in the wind. And then there's these two fishermen and he's like, hey, you should come follow me. And they do it. Like nobody else thinks that that's weird. Like what is going on with these guys? Are they like the most gullible, easily influenced people on the face of the earth? When I was in elementary school, I I love my mom, so please don't. Hear this wrong here. Uh, my mom made notoriously lousy lunches. They were terrible. They were gross. My mom was like ahead of her years like when it came to like health food. Like before you could literally get like all these health food organic brands and stores, my mom was going to co-ops where, where, where these moms would get together and conspire against their kids to make sure they bought food that they didn't like. And she'd go and buy these foods and bring it home. We're like, awesome, we got another month of groceries that we can throw in the garbage and we get them at lunch. Now I figured out at a pretty early age, that I could be pretty persuasive with my words, and so I would get these these lousy lunches. And it was like Ezekiel bread and. And like meat that didn't have like antibiotics. I don't know what antibiotics do for meat, but apparently it makes it taste better uh, because non-antibiotic meats are disgusting. And so I get these lunch, I have like fruit leather and cliff bars. Some of you are like, I like cliff bars. Not when you're in third grade. All you want is a Swiss cake roll. And so I'm sitting there at lunch and, and I'd start going up to little kids and I'd be making deals with like third and fourth graders. I'm like, I'm telling you, this is like super food. This, this stuff is so good. You've never had it before, but trust me, this stuff is like cream of the crop. And I'd trade like my fruit leather for an oatmeal meal cream pie. Now one bite in, the kid would realize that he'd been had and he's like, this is disgusting. I'm like, sorry, the trade has been consummated at this point. No going back. But those are third graders, right? Fourth graders, elementary school kids. And let's be honest. I mean, kids, they're they're not all that bright. Jesus is talking to adults. These are grown men. And he's like, hey, you should just come follow me. And just like that, they drop everything and they decide to follow Jesus. It actually gets worse. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, And they're sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee, repairing the nets because they were fishers for a living as well. And he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat, and I love this part, and their father behind. Even as a kid, this story never made sense to me. I never sat there in awe and thought, wow, this is just so great. People just blindingly abandoning everything and just following Jesus. You have to admire that. No, I was sitting there thinking... What is wrong with these guys, and I especially narrowed in there on their father, What is going through that guy's head? he's like just like that you're abandoning the family business, like thanks for nothing, you lousy sons and I know it's not zebedee 's fault necessarily, but maybe like protest a little bit, maybe put up like a little bit of a fight, like call into question jesus 's credentials rather than just allowing your sons to waltz out of your life but but what happens when you dig a little bit deeper and and you understand the context of what's going on here in this story, it actually begins to make a little bit more sense. Right now here for a couple of minutes, we're, we're gonna nerd out on, on the history of this story and uh, I, I think it's worth it and it'll make this story come to life a whole lot more and if you are like me and think that these things make zero sense whatsoever, it, it will make a little bit more sense at the end of this. Uh, all Jewish boys and, and these men that Jesus was calling to from the beach, they were Jewish men, which meant that they were Jewish boys. They grew up in Jewish households. They went to Torah school at about the age of five. Now, now the Torah, that would refer to the first five books of the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures. A lot of people don't know that. That. The Jewish scriptures and the Old Testament that we have in our book called the Bible, the first half of the Bible, they are one and the same. They are the exact same thing. And the first five books of the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures, we would call those the Torah. And so these kids would be sent off at the age of five to go to Torah school, and they would study the Torah for about a five-year period. By the time they got to the age of 10, they would kind of wean out the best and the brightest 80% would get sent home and they'd continue on and whatever like kind of the family tradition was, whatever their dad had done for a living. But the other 20%, and it was a high honor if you got selected, they would stay in Torah school until about the age of 17. And if at that point the boy wanted to go on and make a career of religious studies, his next step was to find a rabbi that he admired and apply to become one of his disciples. Now when he found that rabbi, they, they would literally go and sit at the rabbi's feet. It was this way of kind of humbling yourself before this rabbi and saying, listen, I think highly of you. I I want to learn from you. And then the rabbi would would examine that student with questions, with tests, to see if he was actually worthy of being his disciple. And the rabbis were really, really, really picky because when they chose a disciple, they were choosing someone that they believed could become just like them, to not just know what they knew, but also to do what they did that they also knew what everybody else knew, that being a rabbi was literally the best possible job. Nothing had higher status. Nothing gave you more clout back at this point in history. Nothing would make your family more proud. Teenagers back at this point in, in society, they didn't dream of becoming pop stars. They didn't dream of becoming Bieber. They didn't dream of becoming professional athletes. They didn't dream of becoming doctors. No, no, they dreamt of becoming religious experts. Now, and this is an important detail, uh, among these religious experts, there was a particularly gifted group of rabbis. And everything that we can gather from, from all this historical data, you know, throughout the history of the world, it would suggest that there's only been about 12 of these extra spe- special rabbis throughout the history of Judaism. These extra special rabbis had a little bit of something that we see in the Hebrew language called shemika. Everybody say shmika. If you were here last week, we taught you a little Greek. This week, we are on to some Hebrew. You're welcome. You all are just getting so smart. Now... People that had Shemika, they were known miracle performers. That they were especially bright. They understood the Jewish scriptures in a way that just other people didn't. That they had these insights that were brand new. They, they didn't simply just regurgitate everything that they had been to, that had been told to them throughout Torah school. Now, now, the reason that I that I tell you this, and the reason that this is such an important detail, is by the time that Jesus entered into adulthood, Everybody understood that he was one of these special few. Everybody understood that Jesus was one of these like special guys that had this shemekah. In fact, one of the few details that we have from the childhood of Jesus was this particular occasion where Mary and Joseph, they they lose track of Jesus and they finally track him down. And at 12 years old, he's in the synagogue and all these religious experts that are like four times, six times his age are sitting at his feet. And he is teaching them things that they have never heard before. He is bringing up insights that were brand new. And they're all looking at each other going, where in the heck did this 12-year-old get shemika from? So with all of that in mind, here comes Jesus rolling along the beach. Here comes Jesus for, for a stroll in the afternoon with all of his Shemekah. And he invites four lowly fishermen four men who did not have a lot of influence, four four men who had already been passed over, four men who had not made the cut to come follow him, To, to come sit at his feet. So it wasn't some Jedi mind trick. No, no, they did what anybody would have done who grew up in this Jewish culture, including you. They followed. They were not about to turn down the opportunity of a lifetime. And and poor Papa Zebedee, you know, sitting there with suddenly his kids out of his life. He wasn't mad. He wasn't irritated. He wasn't frustrated. No, no, no. He was beaming with pride that his two sons had just been hand-selected, had just been plucked by arguably the greatest rabbi who had ever walked the face of the earth. Y'all, Jesus does not choose the best He chooses the willing. But before we go any farther here this morning, can we just take a minute? Can we just pause and get our minds around this? When Jesus assembled his entourage that he was going to use to transform the world, he chose the B team. He skipped over all the boys. He skipped over all the men that had made the cut and he went straight, for the average. He, he went right for the overlooked. Some of you that, that are sitting here today, you're, you're new to this whole Christianity thing. It's taken you years to step back into a church. It might be, again, literally the first time that you've stepped foot into a church. You so need to hear this. This might be the only reason that God has placed you in this room this morning. Jesus is not holding your past against you. He doesn't see you as disqualified. He doesn't see you as too far gone. He does not see you as too old, as not good enough. He sees you as a child of the most high God. He thinks so highly of you, in fact, that he died on a cross for you. Now, not you in like broad terms, but but specifically you. And all you need is a willingness All you need is a posture of humility, an acceptance that you need a savior. It isn't until you see yourself as a sinner that you're gonna see a need for a savior. John MacArthur is a famous theologian. He puts it this way. He says, God skipped the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodotus, the historian, and Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar. He chose men so ordinary, it was comical. No rabbis, no teachers, no religious experts. And you all, Jesus didn't stumble into this. This this was not an accident. He, He knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus chose the B team because his work in the world would not come from their abilities for him but from what he would do through them. People with a lot of talent, people with a lot of ability, people with a little bit of an ego, Jesus knew would only get in the way because they would never learn to lean on God's power. They would instead lean on their own abilities rather than an almighty, rather than an all-knowing and all-powerful God. God wants to use you in your family. He wants to use you in your place of work. Stop making excuses that you are not able. He does not need your ability. All that he requires is your availability. He doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Have you made yourself available? Years ago, I got asked to to speak at a gathering of students at Heartland High School just south of here in, in Livingston County, and um I, I showed up there and, and one of the unique things that heartland high school still does to this day is for about an hour uh, each week in their high school they have club time where, where students can organize these clubs and then you as a student can go to like whatever club you want for that hour each week and, and there were clubs for interest you know all over the place i mean there was video game clubs and there's clubs that had to do with sports and there are clubs that have to do with music there's bass fishing clubs i mean you name it that there was probably a club there and again all ran by students and, and there was a student years and years ago uh, that looked around and saw, man, there's, there's all these clubs, but there's not a single club that has anything to do with Jesus. And so she kind of put herself out there, and because it's ran by students, even though it's a public school, since it's ran by students, she started the Bible Club. And so years ago, I, I get asked to speak at this Bible Club, and I go waltzing into Heartland High School. Uh, one of the teachers mistake me for a student. That was a humbling moment. And uh, I go in there, and I go to the front desk, and I say, hey, I'm, I'm speaking at Bible Club today. Can you kind of Put, point me in the right direction. And I thought they were going to tell me to go to some classroom. As, you know, most of these clubs had 15, 20, 30 kids showing up to them. And they said, oh, actually, uh, Bible Club's really grown. Um, you are actually going to the cafeteria because we don't have a classroom that, that can fit all the kids that show up to this anymore. And so now I'm like thinking, crud, maybe I should have prepared a little bit more. Like, How many kids are going to show up to this thing? And, and so I go waltzing into the cafeteria. The bell finally rings. And, and I sat there that day. And, and by the way, th- this was not like an abnormal day. It wasn't as if Shea Prisk was drawing a crowd. Okay, It, it was just a normal Bible club day, and and I sat there as over 300 students showed up to Bible club. And in a public school for 20 minutes, I got to share the love of Jesus with hundreds of kids who had no relationship with him. And it was all because one student, one young girl decided to make herself available Make yourself available and watch how God begins to show off. This church here is basically just one big glaring example of that. And in response to what Jesus has done for you, in in response to the great lengths that God has gone to, don't, don't miss this, that God has gone to not to pay you back, but in response to the great lengths that God has gone to win you back. Our, our primary calling is to be with him. I, I was saying this to somebody literally just this, this past week. I was like, if we could somehow get every person that shows up to Grumlaw and, and calls themselves a Christian, every person that would identify as a Jesus follower to just spend daily time with God, it, it would be absurd how God would begin to use this community how God would begin to use this group of people that show up here on Sunday mornings. If we could just get every person here to just spend daily time with God, it would be absurd how your life would be completely transformed. But the reality is, is that most of us, again, I'm not trying to like, you know, point the finger at you, but at the same time, I'm kind of trying to point the finger at you. Most of us show up here for an hour a week And even that's being generous because data now says that the regular churchgoer comes to church about once every five weeks. And we expect that that hour every once in a while to somehow constitute being with Jesus. You guys, that's not going to cut it. It is going to fall woefully short. Your relationship with Jesus is not built here on Sunday mornings. It's built in privacy, It's built behind closed doors. When you're truly getting to know Jesus, it's why we make such a big deal around here about daily encounter, about fighting for, getting that daily time with Jesus. And so I'm gonna issue a little bit of a challenge right now. If you're sitting here today and you call yourself a Jesus follower especially, will you for the next 30 days commit to just spending 15 minutes a day with Jesus? isolated time, not with your phone on, not returning texts, but you get yourself in a room, just you and Jesus, no distractions and spend 15 straight minutes with Jesus. Take the time and just share honest feelings with them. That's all that prayer is. Actually crack open, dust the, you know, put the dust off of the Bible and actually begin to read that thing. Again, I know it's a big book. I know it can be intimidating, Just start in one of those four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Just begin to read about the life of Jesus. And watch how over these 30 days, God begins to transform your mind. Watch what God begins to say to you just because you got some good isolated time with him. I'll be honest. When I first wrote this, I put down an hour, but then I whipped it down to 15 minutes because I knew if I said an hour, most of you wouldn't do it. So let's do this. I mean, it's 15 minutes. It's not this enormous amount of time. My wife was sitting right here in the first service and I was looking at her and I was like, our relationship is as good as it's ever been. I don't say that to brag, it's just awesome. Like every day, I'm not just saying that, like marriage gets better, our relationship gets stronger. We've been married now for over nine years and it's just like, I can't believe that I'm married to my gorgeous wife and I can't believe how God has grown that relationship. But guess what? That has not happened by accident. It's because we fight for time for each other. It's because even though sitters are expensive and even though we can make lots of excuses, we make sure that date nights are a priority. It's because we intentionally put our phones down at the end of the evening and we get that time with each other where we actually talk rather than just being buried in social media. It has not happened by accident and it's no different with your relationship with Jesus. Even if you're sitting here today and this is basically all new to you, I would still challenge you to start spending that daily time with God. And listen, it, it will feel strange. It will feel foreign, it will feel bizarre. You will think that you are talking to yourself. If one of your friends saw you, they will think that you have completely lost it. But I'm telling you, the more you do it, the more natural it will feel. The more you'll begin to feel like, dang, Like there, there might actually be somebody out there that's, that's actually listening to me. But by the very fact that you're sitting here today You are acknowledging with your actions that you're at least curious. Why not take it a step further? Why not really give this a shot? The the next thing that I think we can learn from this interaction between Jesus and these four guys is is following Jesus at some point is going to require some sacrifice. It it might not mean that you abandon your dad, that you abandon your family. It might not mean that you throw away your your career. But but at some point, it, it might. Now, some of you, that that freaks you out, and you're like, that is precisely why I do not want to follow Jesus. I do not want to abandon all of these things. Here's what's so important to understand. God isn't going to ask you to take a step of obedience that's 500 steps beyond your faith. There's a reason that that my wife and I were not asked to start a church the day that we graduated from college. Uh, One, we would have been terrible at it. We certainly weren't ready, but honestly, our faith was not at that point yet. Even if God had came down in a vision. I mean, he was standing in front of me. It was like, start a church. The day I graduated from college, I'd have been like, I don't know, that could have been a hologram. I don't know, like, I would have talked myself out of it. It happened little by little. As you begin to take those steps of obedience, when God nudges, when God prompts, your faith grows. And your trust in him grows. And as that faith and as that trust continues to grow, when he asks you to take that next step, that maybe six months earlier, a year earlier, would have sounded completely absurd. You're you're willing to take it because you have seen him come through so many times before. You you eventually get to this point where you're like, of course I trust you. You're telling me to take a leap even though everybody around me thinks I'm a lunatic. Of course I'm doing it because I have seen you, God, now come through. You've been so faithful over and over and over again. And then lastly, and this is the part I'm most excited about in the premise for this series, who's your one? Once you've discovered that that infinite joy of knowing and, and following Jesus, why in the world would we keep this to ourselves? You're called to reproduce what Jesus has done in you and others. This is what Jesus meant when he said that weird thing when he's like, hey, I'm gonna teach you how to go fish for people. And going back to where we started this conversation this morning, that this is the identifying mark of a disciple, that this is the difference of a person that just calls themselves a Christian and is living as a disciple. If you're not bearing fruit, as Jesus would so often put it, if you're not reproducing in others what Jesus has done in you, you have to really question whether you're actually a disciple. Jesus' final words when he was here on earth, I mean, he could have said anything, But his final words to to his followers, including me and you, is right here. We find this in Matthew 28. He says, therefore, go and make disciples. Not sit idly by, go and make. Go do something. Share this with other people. Reproduce what God has done in you and others of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this. And this is the part that brings me a lot of reassurance. I am with you always. Always. He's going, I will equip you. All that I need is your availability. You feel helpless. You feel like you're not good enough. You feel like you're not mature enough. Like you haven't been a Christian long enough. He goes, that is a prerequisite. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And the incredible thing about this, you guys, is that we all, no matter where you find yourself in this whole faith journey this morning, we have all been invited to play a part in this. If you're sitting here today and it's like deer in headlights, this is all new to you. Remember, God does not want something from you. He instead wants something for you. Our heart here at this church isn't to get you to be a part of the club. It's not to get you to be, be a member. In fact, we don't even have membership around here. It's way better than that. We we want you, we want your, your friends, we want your neighbors, we want your coworkers, we want your family to experience the joy of having a true, a rich, a meaningful relationship with Jesus. And not because it sounds like the right thing to do, but because it will lead to such a better life, more fulfilling, more joy more purpose, more contentment than you ever thought imaginable. Maybe you're sitting here today and you are the one. And you need to stop resisting. And you need to stop making excuses. And it's time for you to accept this, this free gift that Jesus is begging you to accept. So one of the great promises that God gives us, as you move closer to Jesus, He will always move closer to you. And so for the Jesus followers, for the Christians that are sitting in this room here today, will you accept this role to make disciples? Will you truly ask this question, who's your one? As was said in that video by me right before I jumped up here, there's a lot of people in this world, right? And for those of you that are following Jesus, it's probably a really daunting number of people to think of all the people in your life that have no idea, all the people in your life that don't have a relationship with Jesus. And I totally get this. It can kind of have this paralyzing effect on us because we don't even know where to start. We don't know who to start with. And so that's the whole premise of this strategy. Who's your one? Just think of that one person. Who is that one person that God has continued to oppress upon your heart? Who is that one person that you're like, my goodness, I just want them to know what it means to have a real relationship with Jesus. And you make it your daily prayer. Not like today and then the rest of the week and then you forget by next Sunday, but your daily prayer until that person comes to know Jesus.